Hey, 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 math moment makers. This week, we interview the great James Tanton, author, curriculum writer, speaker, global math project organizer, creator of exploding dots, and spreader of joyous mathematics. We bet that you'll find yourself smiling as you listen to James' enthusiasm for mathematics and how we can help make math moments that matter for our students. We were so pumped to have James on the podcast because his enthusiasm for mathematics is so contagious, and we know you'd love to listen to his journey and message. So let's do this. Cue the music. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of educators worldwide, want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. Welcome to Episode 6, Looking for Joy in Mathematics, an interview with James Tanton. Are you ready, John? Let's dive in, buddy. But before we do, we want to thank our sponsor, Whitebook. Whitebook provides great dry erase tools for you to use in your classroom. Stay tuned after the show for a special deal from Whitebook. Let's not keep you waiting any longer. Here's James Tanton. Right. Welcome, James Tanton, to the podcast. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing spectacularly well. Life is mighty good. How are you guys? We're we great. are fantastic. Uh, this is a uh, unusual episode because John and I are in, actually in the same room today, which Ooh. is kind of ah, nice. Kyle, you let the cat out of the bag. Yeah, people <laughs> might have assumed that we were always together uh, when we were recording this, but uh, not the case. So there's a question. Are you in the same room when you're video recording or are you doing clever school? <laughs> oh, yes. You know what? Sometimes I think actually we we should probably uh, play with that idea a little bit. Two different green screen rooms here and there. <laughs> Usually, when we're in the same in the same frame, we're together. Uh, but you never know. Sometimes uh, we've got to do some edits on the fly to find that same shirt and uh, and go from there. Plaid shirt. <laughs> Love it. Well, listen, James, we want, uh, for those who don't know you, although you are quite a, uh, a global influencer in the mathematics or math education field, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like, what's your teaching story and, uh, I guess, your math journey? Oh, gosh, my math journey, my teaching story. How long do we have for this podcast? I can go for days. As long as one. you need, my friend. <laughs> Let's see. All right. So, so even for your audience, I probably have an accent. So probably re- people realize I'm not from North America. I'm not from the U.S., even though I live in Phoenix now. Um, so I grew up in Australia, grew up in Adelaide, Australia, um, uh, born 52 years ago, quite a while ago. And let's see, so my mathematics story, it did not start with joy, the mathematics one. So I went through a school system back in Australia, back in the 60s, 70s, that was very, uh, very much procedural rote doing. It's the anglophilic system, that is, uh, my job as a student was just to not ask questions, just to memorize and do. And there were a couple of times I, I tested that system and got knocked back big time. Um, you know, one formative moment for me as a kid in the classroom was uh, was grade nine. So that was the year we were learning the Pythagorean theorem, which seems late to grades today, but that's how it was back then. And it was a big public school, 37 kids in the room. And our teacher um, asked us each to draw a right triangle. In fact, draw three right triangles on our pages, get out our rulers and compasses and do that, measure the three side lengths and work out A squared, work out B squared, work out C squared. And of course, the two legs were called A and B and the hypotenuse had to be called C, had to be that order. 
and see that A squared plus B squared equals C squared. And I had two questions about that. Um, one, I realized that no one can actually draw perfectly and measure perfectly. So I realized no one was actually going to actually see A squared plus B squared equals C squared due to human error and all the rest. But I'll let that one slide. But I did raise my hand to Mr. Phillips at the time and said, excuse me, Mr. Phillips, how do we know this wasn't just a coincidence 111 times in a row? That's maybe, you know, <laughs> we just did 111 examples. Maybe it's just by luck it all worked out each time. And his response to me was really, really, um, it, it spurred me on. His response was, go back and draw another three triangles. So basically the message got, I got was, I'm not going to be told why this is true. My job is to figure out on my own. Wow. And you know, I stuck with, and that stayed with me for years. And I think I was doing some reading on the side and all the rest. And I figured out some proofs of the Pythagorean theorem by then. But I realized I'm in a system that's not going to actually teach me what's going on, just te- teach me how to do. And my job is to perform. Um, so that, that, that actually spurred me on. So it actually kind of made me angry, rather than shut me down, which I'm sure shuts many kids down, kind of uh, it quietly spurred me on. So I did go back and do um, fall in love with mathematics at the university level. <laughs> which was really about all the why and what if questions, all the things I was naturally asked as a kid and wasn't allowed to ask for basically 12 years of my schooling. So um, it, it spurred me to really wonder about why does math work the way they do? And I remember taking an abstract algebra class in particular, which is all about arithmetic. What are the axioms of arithmetic? What makes it work the way it does? And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm finally home. This is what math is. Why couldn't someone tell me this all along? And I knew I was a mathematician. So I basically fell in love with math and just went through as far as I could um, all the way through undergraduate. Um, my first degree was actually in theoretical physics. It took me a couple of years to realize that math was actually my thing. But then um, in Australia, you get to do something called an honors degree. And I switched over to my mathematics and my honors degree for my fourth year of uni. And then uh, went on to a PhD. And that's what brought me to the US back in 1988. So I got a PhD in mathematics at Princeton and that whole sort of, you know, high powered research world. But I've always, always had a strong passion for sharing the beauty and the joy of mathematics and primarily through teaching. So rather than stay in the high-powered research world, I um, became a um, professor at the Liberal Arts College environment uh, for my my university career and loved it. So I wanted a strong focus on teaching and the research. Um, And then life took me around up and down the east coast of America. And I eventually fell into doing a lot of PD work, professional development work for teachers in the Boston area which made me start looking at the um, curriculum again, the, the school curriculum. And I looked at this, and this is the, the late 90s in the US, and I have to say I was dumbfounded and shocked and deeply saddened because I basically saw the same memorized, procedural, and just-do type of joyless curriculum that I went through back some 20, 30 years ago in Australia, you know, on a different continent. It was still just do, 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 don't understand, just do. And it made me actually made me outraged. And I kind of decided then, rather than be one of these professors that complains about what high school teachers do, because professors always complain about high school teachers. And by the way, I know high school <laughs> teachers always complain about middle school teachers, and it goes all the way right. down. It's just yeah, silly. Yeah, just silly. Just don't that. complain. Just do something about it. I decided to be honest and become a high school teacher. I wanted to understand the system and really understand what are the, uh, the barriers, the difficulties, the frustrations, the limitations that actually um, make it hard to turn things around. And I wanted to honestly see, can I attend to this high school curriculum and do so that teaches the thinking and the joy of mathematics and still get the kids to pass the exam. So I became a high school teacher for 10 years. Um, so basically, I'm these, one of these strange creatures that sort of kind of let the team down at the Princeton University level where, you know, high-powered research. And what I'm doing is becoming a high school teacher. And and I really – and I, I, I know I said it with a funny sort of disdain in my voice then because that's kind of what I felt back then, you know, like 20 years ago, that it's that high school teaching was looked down upon – 
just I felt it in the tertiary world, which is silly and morally wrong, you know, because education at all levels, whatever level it is, is absolutely vital, important, and essential. Be it, you know, be at the graduate school level, great. Be at the kindergarten level, fabulous. Be at high school level, fabulous. It's all equally important. Wow, yeah. So I, that sort of made me angry. But you know, I did that, so I became a high school teacher, and now, and now my life is just basically you. Know, I'm not actually in the classroom right now, which is kind of strange and, and, and sad to some degree, but I'm also in this wonderful position where I get to go and visit people all across the globe now, go visit schools and classrooms and colleges and talk about how can we make mathematics joyous and meaningful and relevant and human to one and all, no matter which curriculum you're working with, no matter how enlightened or unenlightened it is, um, it's still a challenge. What's the human story? So um, I feel very privileged and honored to be, having spent 20 years of my life trying to think about that on my personal level and then trying to share whatever random ideas I, I've had and and talk to other people about, let's just bring the joy back to mathematics. Um, so that's my that's my career in a nutshell. So that was probably longer than asked than you wanted, but uh, there was there was, no, my, that was, beautiful. There was my monologue of, of who I, James Tatton, am. Um, just a, a guy who's just passionate about mathematics, how it's really a human, creative, organic enterprise and I feel like I'm a man on a mission to try to do whatever I can personally to to share that with one and all. Be it, you know, be it the teachers, be it the administrators, be it the parents, be it the kiddos themselves, everyone, everyone, literally yeah. everyone. Well, I, I think something like that, you know, early on, I, I wrote myself a note here. I wanted to comment on it. But even going back to your experience in the classroom and thinking of, you know, how curious you were despite the way the curriculum was being shared mm-hmm. with you. Um, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure John agrees with me on this. Like I wasn't even thinking those questions because I had my curiosity. Like I I like to call it like sucked out of me, um, really early on. Like I was not a curious, um, child anymore. And, and I'll be honest, I, I didn't even think I was very creative and, and, Sometimes, and I obviously I need to take responsibility for that as well. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I think I was just so used to going through the the memorizing and the steps and the procedures. I almost got to the point where I didn't I didn't want to know why anymore because I realized that for me memorization was so much easier. And I, I just love how you weren't satisfied with that, even as you know a young a younger student. And, you know, you obviously led that path all the way to, um, you know, becoming, uh, you know, getting your doctorate in mathematics. Um, I, I love your idea that you went back into secondary to teach. I think a lot of secondary teachers who are listening are, are would probably, you know, be really happy to hear that, wow, a professor from university came back to do the job that we're doing. And sometimes I feel the same about elementary teachers feeling the same about, you know, that that same um feeling like of the secondary teachers not appreciating the work that they do. And, and I've had the opportunity to go from secondary into elementary over the past couple of years. So I, mm-hmm. I feel like, although different, um, very similar uh, situations there where I've just been fascinated with how awesome the mathematics is at the, at the younger early years with kindergarten kids and kids in primary, just learning how to count and how, how important that er- those early stages are in order for students to really understand the mathematics that that we're trying to help them understand and and do do so in a joyous way like you're like you've articulated and here's the thing all levels of mathematics are actually incredibly intellectually rich and profoundly nuanced and deep so one of the pieces of flack i kept getting from my colleagues at the university level was aren't you just bored of your brain talking about you know k through 12 math and the answer was no because the deeper you think about things the more you realize how deep they are 
Even the act of counting is fundamentally subtle and nuanced. There's so much intellectual richness to, to probe and explore there. So on the, you know, you, okay, you might be working with very young kids that aren't going to experience that themselves, but as an adult, you've got depth of richness and understanding can sustain you for many, many years at all levels of education. You know, the fact that, um, that we like to believe that uh, multiplication is commutative. So I'll use the fancy language. We'll never use the small kids. But, you know, why should three times four philosophically give you the same answer as four times three? Yes, I know the answer is 12 in both cases, but I want the philosophical reason, you know, without actually having to say 12. And it becomes just one of these epiphanies when you realize, oh, if I take three groups of four, how we understand multiplication at that on the counting numbers level and arrange them in a symmetrical, beautiful, pleasing pattern of a rectangle, and then look at it two different perspectives, then you see something it leaps out to you. Oh, three groups of four, three rows of four is the same as four columns of three, four groups of three. Philosophically, it's the same. That's, a, that's an aha moment when you realize our beliefs of arithmetic based on the counting numbers have a, a geometry to them. And then it just goes on from there. So I just chose a very simple example. But as soon as you have that sort of realization that grade one mathematics is actually intellectually rich and profound, it'll sustain you deeply all the way through in your own personal career, as well as your career of of helping youngsters on their journey of mathematics. Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here, and I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours. So don't wait, head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. You know, James, thinking about going back and and exploring the mathematics at that lower level, because, you know, I, I think I was that math teacher who thought I could, there's no way I could go back and teach, you know, grade six or lower uh, just because that, that, you know, that mathematics, I, I'm so bored out of my mind and how do I teach kids how to count? But it's only been these last couple of years where, you know, my, my work with Kyle and thinking more deeply about how to best help teachers has allowed me to, you know, explore that and find find those nuances that you said and, and find that, that, that great learning that I, that I'm doing about that lower that lower elementary. Um, and yep. I, and I've only just recently come to appreciate that. So I'm glad you brought that up. And actually too, something that uh, jumped out at me, James was, you know, thinking back to, uh, we had a, a big leadership conference here this past November and we had some great speakers, including Dan Meyer and Kathy Fosno and Graham Fletcher, um, that were here with us to share here in Windsor, Ontario. 
And uh, in James, or in James, in uh, Dan's keynote, he he brought up this element of mathematical surprise. Mm-hmm. And just like you had said, you know, you had, you had articulated the idea of the commutative property, and you know, three times four and four times three results in the same twelve. You know, the the same mathematical surprise that was sort of ruined for you through the Pythagorean theorem. That you know, mm-hmm. okay, so you you had the opportunity to build these these triangles, but. There was no understanding. It was almost like, oh, okay, that's surprising, but let's not actually dive deeper here. I'm just like, we're just going to calculate these things that, you know, I'm going to have you memorize to be true. And uh, one that Dan brought up and then Kathy Fosno actually worked into her keynote the very next day was the mathematical surprise of like when you add any two odd numbers, the result is always even. And like how mind blowing that is to a young child, right? Like it's, it doesn't take much to blow your mind. And that could be a super boring concept unless you want to actually go and look at those subtleties like you, like you've argued and and like you've articulated. So like the first, you know, 80% of my career, I'll say I was bored out of my mind because I was just teaching steps and procedures. But then it's been these last few years that I've really, you know, been amazed at how like beautiful it really is and how exciting math class can be when we actually sort of, you know, really chew on an idea that might seem simple on its surface, but really unpack what's going on under there because there is so much and it's connected to so many things as well. And this is really interesting because I actually think K through six mathematics is the most profound of all um, because it runs into a really challenging problem that's very thorny intellectually. Um, that we like to believe that mathematics is modeled by the real world, that we start, and we human beings, was our first mathematical activity is counting, the, the counting numbers. And then we extend beyond that. And as soon as you start getting to the negatives, you realize something is slightly amiss and slightly afoot. And yes, we can start putting um, physical models to the negative numbers, which are about negative temperatures and debt and all the rest. But then you start to have the sense that these models we create are artifices or they're just inadequate in some sense. They never actually get to explain why negative times negative should be positive. And we get onto these subtleties. Well, if I do the opposite of the opposite, then I'm back to the beginning. Sure. But that's not, is that really attending to why multiplication of negatives is positive? Or is that just talking about the negative of the negative being back to the, back to being positive? Uh, is that the same issue or not? It's actually very, very thorny when you start moving from, from the concrete model of playing with pebbles, the actual calculus of mathematics to a little more abstract system, and they realize all our real-world models are correct to some degree, but only to some degree. <laughs> and we still have this feeling that it should be speaking truth all the way through, and it doesn't, because every mathematical model actually breaks down. And it's the it's the K through twelve, K, K through six world that suffers from that challenge. Well, sorry, suffers the wrong word, that that is contending with that challenge. And if it feels like mathematics is always speaking truth with what a model portrays then that's actually going to get you into big trouble. The thing is, how do you break away from what the model seems to be saying and choosing when you want to believe certain aspects of it and when you want to let it go because it's not adequate enough? And that's a very deep, deep intellectual step there. And it's very hard for adults to do. And I think it's unfair we expect kids to be able to handle it, (laughs) to be honest. I think negative numbers are hard. Negative numbers are a high school topic. I'm sorry. So are fractions. They They should be revisited all the way through K through 12 and then attended to again at university. They are so oh, absolutely. Subtle, subtle. Yeah, we're, we're realizing that in our district in uh, Greater Essex, we have spent a lot of time over the past year and a half 
uh, in fractions. And it's like the, the more you learn, the thornier it gets to use your term. And, uh, it's, it's interesting because it, what immediately jumped into my mind and I, I'm, I cannot recall the author off the top of my head. Maybe John may know, but the article on like rules that expire. Yes. And this idea that we often tell kids things and we say it like it's a hundred percent true. Like the smallest number is zero. You know, it's the, it's the lowest, it's as low as you can go. And then all of a sudden one day we basically break it to them that, Hey, guess what kids? I was lying <laughs> because that's not true at all. You know, and, and that, Oh my gosh, the, the next number after one is two. I, you know, I've told you that for years. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, there's actually like a number halfway between and oh my gosh, there's another number halfway between like one and one half so that's- or one and one and a half. And oh my gosh, like what's happening now? And it's just like, it all starts to unravel the deeper you go, which I think is what what we should be sort of priding ourselves on is this whole, again, that that idea of that mathematical surprise that if you keep on digging, it's like rabbit hole just keeps going and you'll never come out the other end, it seems. So here's the big thing about anything you do in life and read and learn. It's all about context context and nuance. In a certain context, yes, zero is indeed the lowest you can go. But if you start to expand your context and, and uh, your understanding, you expand your picture, then you have to reassess where does a statement like that stand. So it's not so much that we're lying. It's just the fact that we're now asking students to expand their sense of awareness of what could be. And then context change, which then does require reassessing what you choose to believe or not believe. And we don't talk about that metacognition so much in math class, where math is actually all about that, the metacognition of what you're doing. So we, we've, and this, this, this is what worries me, this, this public perception that, you know, I like math because I know when I'm right or wrong. Well, you know you're right or wrong in a certain context, but actually only in that context could you be deemed right or wrong. If I change context on you, then it's a different ball game. You have to reassess what you're choosing to believe. We don't have those metacognitive uh, type discussions in a standard curriculum, and we should. And to me, mm-hmm. that is the greatest gift that we could teach the next generation to always stand back and reassess what you think you know and how you know it and whether it still applies in the context you're currently aware of. And the answer could be, yep, it's still the same, fine, great. Or it could be, you know, I'm more aware that, you know, uh, you know, I could go all the way. We live in a very turbulent political system. Maybe my understanding of my family's politics is not quite adequate to understand, you know, nation politics or global politics. You know, it's it, context. Expanding context requires continual reassessment of what, what you think you know and how you think you know it. And I think math class is perfect for that. You know, when all you know is the counting numbers, life has got some good stuff to it. As soon as you start expanding it to negatives, then questions appear. And they're good questions. And it just changes your perception of what the lowest number could mean or what even a common factor means. In fact, I was just uh, looking at some curriculum materials in International Curriculum this morning. who was asking, an exam question was asking, What's the greatest common factor of 4x cubed and 6x squared and 10x to the fifth or something like that? And obviously they wanted the answers. I can't remember what numbers I just said, but they wanted an answer like 2x cubed. That's obviously the answer they wanted. But then you realized, hang on, this is algebra class. X represents an yet-to-be-determined value. It could be a fraction. It could be an irrational number. In which case, ask if the greatest common factor of 4, the square root of 17, and 3 is meaningless. You know, because every number is a, common, is a multiple of any other number in the real number system. So, <laughs> so there is no <laughs> highest common factor of some polynomials, except in the context, obviously, what you want to be talking about is, no, I only want to be working with polynomials with intercoefficients and integer powers of X. 
in which case the greatest common factor has a different meaning, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we, but we, we'll teach kids, here's how you answer that type of exam question. Actually, there's a lovely meta discussion to be had there. Technically, right. there is no answer to that question. It's a meaningless question, it's a silly question. There are no greatest common factors in the real number system. There's an epiphany right there. Great, right. you know, fabulous fun. Um, and then what could the examiners mean? What could the curriculum authors mean by that? And then you're, you're trying to assess what tool they're trying to get at for what purpose. And then we'll learn about factory polynomials down the road if we need them. I personally don't think we do, but yeah. the curriculum thinks they're a vital skill that every student oh well. I can't help but uh, when when you describe that problem and you you know your explanation, um, I would be first of all curious if any students would be brave enough to you know share uh, that insight. If let's say they had noticed what you noticed about that particular question, you know, if if x was a fraction or you know these different scenarios. Yeah. Um, it, it makes like to me, it makes us kind of look at math and, and to try to make math more like some of the social sciences from, you know, and, and even just like this idea of philosophy. And I, I'm picturing like, you know, when I wrote an essay, an essay was so creative and it was all about perspective and opinion and being able to bring in like I'm hearing some of those elements like you're describing some of those pieces to make math a lot more like many of the other subject areas um, that that we we learn and to give you more freedom that, you know what, it's not going to be as easy as right or wrong like it maybe mm-hmm. maybe was for us when we were in school. It's about, you know, kids actually expression, expressing some like deep thought and the metacognitive piece that you've uh, you've articulated so nicely here. Mm-hmm. Also, when I think about my experience and I've become a, a quite a different teacher from a few just a few years ago, uh, but. I was hoping as, when I was planning my lessons that those questions didn't come up during my lesson. I didn't want a kid to bring that up uh, because that would derail my lesson. You know, that you've got this imagine, you've imagined this flow from one spot to the other, which was very procedural to get that learning goal out into the open. And And I'm hoping that the kids don't bring these questions up because now we have to derail the lesson to go this way. Or maybe I didn't even know how to answer them. I'm like, and and that would scare me. And I know there's a lot of teachers out there that the math sometimes scares us to, to, to go into those deeper conversations. Yeah, what if I don't know the answer? Well, I know. So there is definitely this this fear that, or this expectation, you need to be the expert in the room. There's that feeling, you know. Um, and there's a parental expectation that you are. <laughs> and, uh, and that, to me, is um, unnecessary and sad, but actually is completely necessary in the sense that Okay, um, how is mathematics success defined in the classroom? It's usually defined by the assessments that are given. And in the end, the assessments that truly matter are the big provincial or state or national exam type things, which are really about answering math facts under speed with one correct answer by and large. So, you know, I'm, I'm painting a very sad picture of the math curriculum to this day, but we're still stuck in that, 18th, that 19th century model to some degree where math is defined, math success is defined as speed answers to what questions. In which case, I will never blame, never blame a kid for wanting to garner success via the tools that best prepare you for that success, namely memorize and do. I'll never blame a teacher who's, who's um, you know, whose definition is actually defined by student assessment success, in which case the best strategy you could argue is to attend to the test in a very direct way, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't say teach the test because that, that's a bit too sad, but definitely attend to it. You must attend <laughs> to it, um, in which case it's a strong focus. 
And if that's the, if that's the world we're in, then I do not blame one wit for operating in that world. So my thing has always been, how can I get my kids to still pass those exams? And I had no choice. When I was in the system, I had no choice but to go to the particular exams I was giving. Um, but still find those moments, those baby steps, those elements of just teasing apart that sense of meta thinking, of cognition, of playing with ideas, that sense of joy. What's the mathematical thinking here? And transmuting the idea that math content is sacred, because actually I don't really care about factoring quadratics, to be honest. In fact, most quadratics don't actually factor, by the way. Um, that's not important. <laughs> the vast majority. Yeah, but, yeah. but if you use as a vehicle for teaching thinking, then sure, let's talk about quadratics. That's a great topic to teach thinking. You know, so, mm -hmm. so the content becomes the tool, but not the, the, the sacred element of the, of the, of the work at hand. Um, but that will take a, that takes a, a major mind shift, and especially when the exam in the end is all about how many of these quadratics can you factor in a hurry? What can you do? <laughs> you have to factor those quadratics in a hurry. That's all you can do. It's, it's interesting. Well, hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, do us this huge solid. Uh, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. Well, you know, you've kind of brought us to a, a really nice place here because we did want to talk to you a little bit about, um, you know, when you were teaching in the high school, mm -hmm. um, you know, you definitely, uh, we're going to say you've got a really strong background in the mathematics and even secondary math teachers, while many are very confident with um, memorization and procedures and, you know, hey, I could complete the square of, you know, anything you throw at me, uh, but you know, they might be wondering, so when you went back into the high school, like, did you have any challenges or barriers that you were up against? And some of them are structural, I'm sure, as you've mentioned, you know, this idea that at the end of the day, you might not have been able to uh, write your own exam. So you didn't get to decide what was going to be assessed. Um, however, like, you know, what were some of the other challenges that you experienced that may, uh, I guess, make you more empathetic? Because I, I did hear you say, that you don't blame the the teachers for, you know, kind of having some of these, you know, some of these beliefs, I suppose, based on the system that we're teaching in. Um, so, like, what were those challenges and barriers like for you while you were in the classroom? Let's see. So, yeah, so there were, uh, definitely went through some cultural shocks on the mathematical level. Um, so, I, I, okay, when I left the university world, I actually looked at K through six, through eight, through twelve, and I decided to go to high school in particular. Because I felt like that was the toughest challenge of thinking about where's that wiggle room for uh, joyous mathematical thinking. Because I got the sense the culture of high school is more or less, and forgive me for speaking so bluntly here, but there's that element that, okay, all fun and games are now over. We're now in lockdown mode. Our job is to get you into college. Hmm. Um, okay, so right. I felt like good stuff was going on in K through six and six through eight, but I felt that that high school had a particular mentality to it that you know, we're now serious, fun games are out. And the one thing that shocked me was how much um, diagrams and pictures were eschewed from the curriculum. Yes, you draw pictures of graphs, 
but that's it, <laughs> you know. And I think yeah. so much mathematics, and that's only because it was on the correct. test, right? <laughs> I think so much of mathematics is actually visual. And I'm going to be controversial here, but I think our brains, our mammalian brains, are primarily visual as well. And pictures speak a thousand words and spawn ten thousand ideas. You know, it shocked me that people did not realize that completing the square, despite saying the words, is actually completing the picture of a square. And the whole story of quadratics is not about solving these equations. It's really a story of symmetry. Why do we like squares? Because they're mm-hmm. symmetrical. You know, if I told you I had a rectangle whose area was 36, you know nothing about that rectangle. You know, it could be, could be four by nine, could be, you know, four and a half by eight. Who knows what it is? If I add the adjective, oh, by the way, my, my rectangle is symmetrical, then you suddenly know everything about that rectangle. It's a six by six square. That's the power of symmetry. So really, the mathematical mm-hmm. lesson of the quadratics unit is about the power of symmetry. It comes up in the algebra, because you can literally complete the square of these things. And it comes up in the graphing because turns out these, these graphs are symmetrical U-shaped type graphs. So to graph anything, all you have to do is find two symmetrical points on a symmetrical U-shaped graph and common sense tells you everything. That's the power of thinking like a mathematician. Oh, and answer all the exam questions too, by the way. So, 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 <laughs> so, my, so that, was my, that was my delight of being a high school teacher, but also my challenge. And I was definitely a strange beast. Um, it was very hard to talk about this, and especially amongst my immediate colleagues, because, um, you know, here's this guy, a PhD from Princeton, coming in, um, hand-selected by the heads of the school to come in and, and do this stuff. What's he going to think of us? You know, I knew I was intimidating, and it turned out I couldn't really talk about teaching with my colleagues at that time. It's not since I've left, <laughs> left that school that kind of, we can start having conversations about it. So I was doing a lot of, a lot of right. stuff um, in private. And just, you know, behind my classroom right. door, which is always open. So open, open classroom door, but, um, but it's, but it's, but that was, that was hard. So obviously I really enjoyed taking a topic like quadratics thinking, okay, what's the true mathematics story really going on here? What's what, what's the thinking I want to teach as a mathematician to these kids and get them to pass those exam questions. So that was my greatest challenge. I was kind of on my own, didn't have anyone I could talk to about it. Okay. That's fine. Um, but I kind of loved it, but it was also turned by that, just how close the system, how scared, scared the system was at the time. I think things have changed now. Um, whatever you think of the Common Core in the US, I will applaud it simply because it talks about understanding and thinking. You know, the content, sure, it's got funny, quirky things in it, and, but it's the still same math content. That's not the issue. But as soon as you start using the words understanding and thinking, you've got thumbs up from me. I'm sure it's you know, not going to be perfect, but... Anything to do with those words, I'm in. Count me in. Right, right. And, and you know, I heard you saying about this idea that uh, math is visual, and that just in general, like humans, we are, we are very visual. And I, I always struggle when I hear people say, "Well, that you know, this student is a not a visual learner, or this one is." And I'm going to argue that, well, like assuming that they don't have a you know a visual impairment, um, students are. All, definitely visual because like think of how much we are seeing every single mm-hmm. second of the day every time we open our eyes and 
you know, math, like you said, it, it began in the real world. It's, it's concrete. And, and then, you know, we can use visuals to help us better understand it. And then eventually we get sort of lazy and, you know, that laziness leads us to the symbols, which is kind of funny because I always used to sort of think that my students were the lazy ones because they didn't want to use the symbols or, mm-hmm. or the operations and all this algebra, when in reality, it was sort of the opposite. I was the lazy one because I was using symbols to represent something that was way more complex. And, uh, and I, 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 I'm wondering if you're, uh, if a teacher's at home right now listening, saying, Hey, I'm a, I'm a secondary teacher or a high school teacher. And like, how, like, how can I, you know, how can I make sure that I help kids to see that the math is visual? Like what might be some approaches that, uh, that pop into your mind? Well, I mean, one thing that always strikes me as, as, as delightfully curious is that when people realize that when you talk about the powers of X, X to a little superscript two, X to a superscript three, X to a superscript four, we have the words for the first two of them, X squared, X cubed. And they realize that's actually geometry. We're just actually saying geometry in an algebra class. And so it is the epiphany for people that realize X squared is the area of an X by X squared. And X cubed is actually the volume of an X by X by X cubed. And it's curious we don't have a word for X to the fourth power. Well, why is that? Because we humans aren't very good in three dimensions, beyond three dimensions. So that, that's a little epiphany right then and there. Well, some, one that's even easier or sim- more simplistic than that is how long I went on before I realized the idea of squaring just regular old numbers, not even not even X's. Right. And, you know, that I was like, oh, like, that's really what's happening. Like, I knew three squared was nine. Yeah. I knew yeah. that because, you know, my teacher made me know that. And I knew that I could square root nine and get three. But it took me a very long time, like till I was actually teaching when I was like, I could actually take like these little square tiles and I could make three rows and three columns. And that was three squared. And I can't do that for six. And I can't, it was like mind blowing. I'm like, what is going on here? Yeah. So my point is exactly that, is that there there are clues all throughout our arithmetic and our algebra that speak geometry and just become a cognizant of them. The word square be it, you know, in the algebra class, or as you just say, the square numbers in arithmetic, it is actually geometry. I think so much of our mathematics is geometry. And even the square root, and what does the word root mean? You know, why would I say the square root of three is nine? And what am I asking for? I'm asking for the root feature, the foundational feature of a square of area nine. Well, that's probably its side length. This thing I want to know about. Hence, the square root of nine is its side length, three of the actual square of area nine. And then that makes you realize that um, – People get fussy, but they won't use the square root symbol for negative answer. They won't say the square root of nine is negative three using that square root symbol. And that's because the story is a human one, that that was a symbol invented for geometry, because we're now talking about the actual physicality of actual squares, in which case you would not have a side length of negative three with the geometry. That's why we will not say in arithmetic class with that radix symbol that the square root of nine is plus or minus three. Now, in algebra class, if I was asked to solve x squared equals 9, then I will say x is either 3 or negative 3 because the context changed. We're not speaking, per se, geometry in that algebra class. But, you know, those sorts of stories. Our human story of mathematics is actually extraordinarily visual from the get-go, and there's clues that visual story all the way from the beginning grades upwards, square numbers being an obvious, obvious first place to start. Yeah, and and also, and you know, and you know, I'm obsessed with the vinculum. I think the vinculum is just a gorgeous story to tell. That horizontal bar symbol, which was uh, used in, in about the 1200s, 1300s to represent groupings, sort of uh, 
Do you call them brackets or parentheses in Canada? I always get confused when I go to different countries. Uh, interchangeable. interchangeable. Yeah. Mostly brackets. Ontario seems to be a bracket sort of province, yeah. but uh, I think right. uh, I think it kind of goes back and forth depending on where yes. you are. Yes. So back yeah. in the twelve hundreds, people used to put a horizontal bar. If I wanted two plus three plus four, and I wanted you to think two plus three first, please, and then go plus four. You know, we put parentheses or brackets around the two and three these days, but they used to put just a horizontal bar on top of the two and the three, saying, I want two and three to be the first thing that comes into your mind, and then add four. Great. But, you know, that 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 notation went out the window with the invention of the printing press because because uh, was very hard to print in, in the half-line positions, so they decided to go with parentheses. that could have tiles that stayed in the same line, and we're stuck with parentheses now. But it's actually fabulous to look where the vinculum still survives in mathematics to say, whenever you see a horizontal bar, it usually means grouping of some kind. You know, when I write an re- infinite repeating decimal as 0.18 with a bar above the 1 and 8, I'm saying that 1 and 8 are being grouped together, please, to be repeated. Um, even the square root symbol, we think it's one symbol, like a little hook symbol with a bar. Actually, that's two symbols. That's a radix, the hook, and the vinculum, the bar, because people got confused. When I wrote the square root of 4 plus 6, did I mean the square root of 4 and then add 6, or did I mean the square root of 10? So they put a bar with the square root sign to make it very clear what they're grouping. A little visual clue right there. Um, and of course, I just learned something. Yeah. That's I don't know about for me. John, for yeah. sure. I didn't know uh, that about the And grouping. then go to algebra class. You know, when kids uh, see 2x plus 4 all over 2, it's very tempting to cross out that first 2 from the 2x and that 2 on the bottom and not divide the 4 by 2. But you realize, oh, my gosh, there's a vinculum there. It's a bar. So that 2x plus 4 in the numerator is all one group. All of it gets divided by 2, not just part of it, all of it. So the story of the vinculum there is telling me, up oh, 2x plus 4 is the entire group, so divide it by 2, please. X plus 2 is the answer. So, I mean, there's, there's all those beautiful visual clues throughout the story of mathematics that pervade up to algebra class even and help with common algebra problems. Like we just said, like my mind is just exploding. <laughs> and uh, that actually, now that I say that, um, it makes me think about uh, exploding dots. And and I know that uh, when, I, when I say exploding, James Tanton to another teacher. They're like, oh, that guy who's doing exploding dots. And I wonder if we can shift to talk about that a little bit. Uh, and if anyone who's listening who doesn't know about exploding dots, can you can you fill us in on like where that came from? What it, like what made you think about that? Like what's involved with exploding dots? Oh my goodness. Okay, so I mean, here's one of the most beautiful and profound stories of mathematics. It really is the invention of how we write numbers with place value. The story of place value is actually profound. Um, and exploding dots is uh, something I had been thinking about um, just before I actually started teaching in, in the high school world. I was thinking about uh, um, these ideas of, of uh, when I was doing PD work with teachers, I was actually thinking about polynomials. I thought, why do we have to teach polynomials? What, what is it about polynomials that a high school student should care about? And it's really, I realized polynomials are just numbers base X rather than base 10. If you think of it that way, then everything you do with polynomials is comes to repeat in grade five. And that made me realize, okay, there's a true story here. It's the, it's the power of place value in its own right. So um, when I went into high school teaching, I really developed this, this storyline, which I called exploding dots, um, of trying to bring a visual image and the, and the power of visuals to the story of place value. So, so I guess the idea is think of, I mean, the, the Asian cultures have it right. I think they've got a visual image of, their, of mathematics in their brains early on as youngsters with the abacus. An abacus is just a bunch of rods with beads on them. And the idea is basically you slide 10 beads to the top. And so you get 10 beads to the top, 
bring them down and move one bead up, one rod over. So an abacus is actually representing base 10. So I've just done basically take the idea of an abacus, but not be locked into base 10, be locked into any base you like, and just draw dots that explode because who doesn't love explosions? As soon as you've got 10 dots in a box, kaboom, it disappear and are replaced by one dot, one place to the left. Um, so, it's a, so it's a very a visual and immediately appealing way to see, um, to play with the, the mechanics of place value until you have an epiphany to realize, oh, this tantum guy is playing with place, place value. When he puts 273 dots into a machine and gets the code 273, we are really talking 270, that TY being short for 10, and 3. Suddenly, we have paternalized the idea that we do speak in terms of powers of 10. And, that, and the mechanics is very visually obvious, these ideas of exploding dots. And then the lovely thing about that is you can just keep playing with it. Um, this, you're not locked into 10 -ness. We humans are obsessed with the number 10 on matters of arithmetic and counting because of our physiology. Though you realize there are some cultures that were based 20, probably because they were aware of their toes. There are some cultures that were based 12. A lot of Southeast Asia is, is based 12 because it's a very natural way to count to 12 on one hand. You think about using it? And bakers, and, sorry, right? and, and, and bakers. bakers, right? Well, 12, and then, but yes, well, hang up. Everything's human. Why? Why do we in trades and measure go with twelve a lot? Bakers and you know, twelve inches and a foot and so forth, because ten is a very awkward number with very common fractions that come up in everyday life. I can do half of ten, fine, mm -hmm. but often you want to deal with quarters and thir thirds of things. Awkward for the number ten. Twelve is a much more natural number when it comes to matters of basic fractions, half, thirds, and quarters. Hence, you want a dozen of something because if I only want half a dozen or a third of a dozen, I've got a good whole number of loaves of bread, which is great. So there's a human story there. Um, but then once you realize that you're just playing with place value, exploding dots says makes all these school algorithms of you know long addition, long subtraction, long multiplication, long division obvious, just visually obvious. Just do, just do it. There's no there's nothing to understand. You just do it, and there it is. And then just do it again in some unknown base. And just to make algebra teachers happy, let's call it base X. And then suddenly you realize all of high school polynomial, polynomial algebra is just a repeat of grade five. And no one told you. No one told you. Um, so, you know, so I would do this in my high school classes that are meant to be teaching factoring of polynomials and all this, all this stuff. Well, I'll spend a lesson going through base two, base three, base 10, going through all of high school, all, all of grade school arithmetic again. But suddenly, as soon as you really own that for the first time in your life, and I think you've got the maturity by, by your teen years to really start to own that, um, then polynomial algebra, which I meant to teach for two weeks, is trivial. There's nothing to do. So we had like two weeks up, up, up our sleeves to play with. So it was great. Um, right. But then what, doesn't, what you know, pleases me as a mathematician, the thing about mathematics, there is no such thing as being done with a topic because every answered question invites more questions. So why stick with finite polynomials? And then suddenly you can do infinite series with these exploding dots. And lo and behold, we're doing some, you know, infinite series and calculus type stuff. Great, almost obvious and straightforward. Geometric series formula, piece of cake with these exploding dots. But why stop there? Um, you know, I, I'm working with like 10 one machines where 10 dots explode, one box become one dot one place over. Why not get quirky and start mixing up the numbers? And you can discover things like base one and a half and base by the golden ratio and base this and that. And suddenly you're in unsolved research territory. So this one story of just looking at an abacus and just thinking deeply about an abacus in about an hour, you can go from knowing nothing and learning how to write numbers for the first time, 
whip all the way through the grade school arithmetic, whip all the way through high school polynomial algebra, do some elements of calculus with infinite series, and get to some unsolved research questions, still, still challenging mathematicians to this day, all within an hour or so, just through the playing with the incredible visuals of these, these dots. Yeah, when I when I first came across, you know, your work around exploding dots, again, yeah, the explosion happened to my mind. And uh, I um, had shared it out with some teachers in my district. And we had kids in our district in primary playing with the two to one machine and all, you know, all the way to the 10 to one machine. And, you know, they're starting to add and do all kinds of craziness with it. And then we had kids in high school, like you said, who zipped through all of that stuff. And they were sort of in, in a way almost like, what is this? This is so easy. And then you all of a sudden open the next door and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm able to operate on polynomials and I'm able to, you know, like do all kinds yeah of crazy things with this one mathematical model. And I, I think, you know, John and I are, are always say that the, the work we spend on the conceptual understanding, like the underpinning of, of how all of this stuff in mathematics works, even though like teachers are constantly struggling to find time, you know, it's always like time cool. is such an yeah. issue. I think the reason we run into that is because we teach everything so siloed and so separate that we don't actually see the connection. So like you had said, if you spend a little bit of time here, you're unpacking this, this mathematical model, as Kathy Fosno would say, like a power tool that you can go back to and continue extending and extending and extending instead of introducing this new idea that's completely brand new, completely foreign to everything that I've known previously. And I, instead, I'm building on top of it. And like you said, you had oodles of time left. Like that's what we find when, you know, we're working with concrete manipulatives and different visual models. And, uh, you know, I, I want to thank you for obviously unpacking that for me, because it was one of those things I had a, a minor in computer science. I understood binary. And when I started playing with the machine and how long it took me to go, oh, wait a second, this is binary? Oh, and oh my gosh, it all works the same? Oh my goodness. You know, it's it's right there before your eyes. It's, uh, you know, it's a great way for kids to problem solve and like build their critical thinking skills while also developing a conceptual understanding of just how numbers work. And that to me, I think is, is just magical. If, if that's all kids take with them is just this idea that I know that everything in mathematics, it all has a reason and it's all interconnected right. some, some way, somehow I might not understand them all yet, but I know that it's possible if I was to, you know, dig at something uh, deep enough. And that's one thing I really do wish to bring to the curriculum is that sense of story. It really is a story that does go from K through six, through eight, through 12, through 16 and beyond. Um, it's, it's a beautiful human experience and, you know, let's share that with us, our fabulous next generation. Let's bring that story to the world. I just, you know, Kyle was just talking about like that power tool and stretching it to, from, you know, one side of the grade to the other. And, and I really, I really appreciate when you said, um, that high school algebra it was really just a repeat of grade five. And, and, you know, that brought to my mind another power tool that we, that, you know, not until recently, became something that I also saw that we were doing in grades four and five that we could uh, put to use in, in high school algebra, which is the mm -hmm. area model. And, and I know that you are a big proponent of the area model for, for doing various things like algebra and, and also multiplying, say, two digit by two digit numbers. But we've also seen that the uh, exploding dots uh, model can also be used for like multiplying two digit by two digit numbers. 
What would you say to a teacher who's wondering about like, do I use the area model or do I use exploding dots? Or do I use one first or do you one second or do I do both? <laughs> is there a progression that you'd recommend is optimal? Like what, what do we help these teachers uh, kind of so answer these questions? Yeah. Well, okay, so that's a good question. So, so okay, one thing is not to be locked into a, a literal way of thinking that, okay, so I'm, I am having people... Uh, draw boxes and dots when they want to divide big polynomials. But in no way would you want to, every single time you divide two polynomials, draw a whole bunch of dots and boxes. It just takes too long. Um, I'm not saying that we must do it this way. You'll find after a while that if you actually do want to divide a lot of polynomials, you'll, you'll stop drawing the dots. You'll just write the numbers instead of dots. And you'll stop drawing boxes after a while. And then you realize you have like a little shorthand for yourself because you've got the visual first in your head and what you're doing is on paper is just a, a rough visualized um, representation of that visuals in your head. It's not meant to be the actual literal visuals anymore. So, um, so when I say do exploding dots, I don't say, please don't make your kids draw dots every single time or just drive any sane person bonkers. I'm not saying that. Let them make their choice. And one thing you'll realize after a while is that exploding dots is a model and it has its limitations. Yes, you can multiply polynomials just fine in it, but it's a little bit tedious. Division is actually extraordinarily simple and slick, which is amazing. But multiplication is actually not quite as nice and slick. And you'll realize that the area model actually is a much more sort of clean way to do polynomial multiplication. Um, I would say do it all, do it both, and just pick and choose as you go along, right. basically. And, and again, don't bother drawing the actual areas of rectangles every single time. Once you've got the visual in your head, you've got the visual in your head, that's all you need. If you want to draw the rectangle, great. Exactly. If you don't, great. All is good. Um, as long as you can figure out how to articulate what you've done to someone else if they ask you about it, that's all you have to be able to do. Um, but definitely oscillate back and forth and give a sense of empowerment to, to students to pick and choose. So I would, when I did teach exploring dots in my classroom for polynomial division, I also did the area model because isn't it great to be able to see the same thing from multiple different perspectives and it all comes together beautifully. Now go ahead and pick and choose which way you like. Beautiful. And this, and this, actually, this is one thing that really saddens me. Um, I, as I mentioned earlier, I am looking at one particular yeah. international curriculum right now and I'm seeing the exam questions are such that, you know, uh, please solve this question via this method. And as soon as they say that, it just makes my heart sink. You know, isn't it better to just say, right. please solve this question and be able to justify how you got there? <laughs> you know, it's a much more empowering right. question. Right. And, and maybe articulate, like, you know, why you picked that particular Some, strategy, yeah. you know, like, and, you know, you don't have to evaluate that, but just out of curiosity, like, why did you think that, you know, completing the square here was a better idea than going at it whatever. graphically or whatever. going at, you know, whatever... Yeah, whatever strategy, you know, it's interesting because I've heard you throughout this discussion talking about the visual and talking about mathematics, like I'm hearing this sort of, you know, I'll call it concreteness fading or CRA approach or, um, you know, recently a, a colleague of mine shared the idea of uh, an acronym called ELPS, which I guess was in Great Britain, um, you know, for some time, this idea of like, in math, like thinking experiential first and then building the language in and then building the pictorial and then the symbolic. But regardless of what you want to call it, it's just this, it seems like this idea that if we are working in an abstract land mathematically, that symbolic land, I liked how, you know, I was picturing in my mind, you know, the, the dots turning into the numerical symbols and then the boxes and exploding dots sort of fading away. And then all of a sudden, 
you sort of have yourself a bit of a, a standard algorithm created, or at least a algorithm. It might not be standard, but it is an algorithm that you know works. And the beauty is, is that you could always go backwards. Like the, what, what I see when I'm thinking about concreteness fading, this idea of me and my mind being able to, if I got stuck, I forgot a step. I forgot, mm-hmm. you know, how to get there. It's like driving in my car and the road is closed. It's I'm not stuck. I don't just get out of the car and call, you know, call an emergency vehicle to come pick me up. I, I take a different route. And this allows you to kind of backtrack. It's like you understand the mathematical terrain uh, conceptually of how this concept, you know, came to be. And you always have that to fall back on if you're more we'll call it efficient or more, you know, um, um, you know, less cumbersome way of getting there ever causes you any problems, yeah, right? Just, if you forget along the way, you always know how you to got get something back. to hold on to something to hold on to memorization. If I forget how the pluses and minuses go in the quadratic formula, I'm doomed. <laughs> but if I understand, I can always right. just draw a quick square on the side and do it that way and figure it out. Then you're good. You're golden. It, it, right. How, like, how do you how do you go ahead and, and try to dive deeper into an idea, like go more abstract, like deeper down that that um, that complexity? If I all I'm doing is sort of like building off of rules that I've memorized, which were built off of other rules, which were built off of other rules. But I never really understood how that first rule came right. to be. Right. Like that's a pretty, that's a that's a pretty uh, yes. insecure. <laughs> yeah. That that foundation is pretty wobbly. Right. Right. So that's the thing. So how, so the real question is to penetrate through the, the huge pages and pages of stuff and ask what's really going on here. What's the actual core of this idea that makes it tick, that makes it work. And if you can find that, then you can always build off of that at any stage of your life and, and revisit it multiple times in your life to see it in new lights, new contexts, new nuances. It's that really, what is the core? And like I said, you know, for example, to me, quadratics, it's the story of quadratics, the story of the power of symmetry. As soon as you've got symmetry in your life, then you can use it to your fabulous advantage and look at the algebra quadratics, look at the graphing quadratics. You know, the teaching that sort of thing is just, I think, is actually a life lesson, to be honest. It's not so much being caught up in the in the details. Of course, you have to attend to the details, but be able to step back and say, what is the thrust of what's really going on here? That's a life skill. That's a major life skill. And to think about that that visualness again, it's and it, it really, it really uh Okay, I guess the word is irks. It irks me when we, you know, view visual tools or concrete tools as, as some teachers might call them, like lower or a crutch, and only use uh, tiles or counters no. or no. pictures or diagrams if you need it, and not and because you can't do the abstract algebra. I, I, it really bugs me when teachers say that or, or push for that. Like you have to go to this way uh, of. And we want you to go there right away. And and if you can't do that, you're you know you're not operating at a at a at a higher level. I know, and and, and it's, it, that operates everywhere. I mean, it always struck me as odd that we teach kids the long division algorithm first, in the sense that what I mean by that, that was an algorithm that was actually devised after many 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 decades, if not centuries, of process. I mean, ink was special. Ink was precious in the 1700s. So you wanted to write something on paper that used as least amount of ink as possible. So we came up with all these algorithms for arithmetic that were very compact and very short and strange. So the long division algorithm we come up, came up with is, a, is the end of a human process of trying to understand what the, the process is and then compactifying, compactifying, compactifying it to use as least amount of ink on, on precious paper. 
But then what do we teach kids first in the old curriculum is here's the long division algorithm, the end of the human process, not what led to that process in the first place. I've got nothing. I have nothing against teaching the long division algorithm, but if it's done without thinking, then I have to argue what's the point because any right you know, minded human will get out their smartphone to actually work out 276 divided by 12. That is the smart thing to do. Right. However, or just ask Siri to do it for you. Whatever. Exactly. That's what you would do in this day and age. So if you're not teaching about thinking, then don't teach at all. But I do say teach it, but teach the thinking because there's a lovely story there that led mankind from knowing what division was and figuring out this beautiful way to write it on a piece of paper. It was kind of compact and neat. Now, turns out you're right that it really is exploding dots. Just you got lazier and lazier and lazier and not, I don't mean lazier, but like more efficiently didn't need to draw the dots. You wrote numbers, didn't you draw the boxes. You just, just drew lines or didn't even bother drawing the lines anymore. Or you just wrote some, some, you know, staggered table of numbers. Voila, you know what? It will look like the standard long division algorithm very much so by the end of it. That's a wonderful human process. And to, to be able to step back from that and, and see that is a lovely meta lesson for one and all. So let's teach the meta lessons too. Yep. No, I love it. I love it. And I know for me that one of my greatest challenges, even after I realized that, you know, we should be teaching for thinking, um, was what, like, I realized, wow, I've got a lot of work to do because I don't understand the story of long division yeah. or I don't understand the story of quadratics or, you know, despite the fact that I could do all the formulas, yeah. I could do all the algorithms. Um, so, and I, I think the big message that I want to make sure that people are, that people are hearing, um, from this conversation is that's okay. There's no shame in that. It's just, but the work has to be done and uh, we can all do this together. And, and that's really what, uh, what this podcast is all about. And you know what? It's, it's, it's actually joyous. It's actually joyous, fabulous work. It doesn't matter what level you're at and where you, where you feel like you should be. There's no, get, get rid of the word should. You just at where you're at and just go for it and do so with joy and bring others along the way with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great, great lesson. Well, listen, James, we don't want to take up too much more of your time. This has been a fabulous conversation. So we have one one last question for you. And it's really, uh, it's going to be open for you because we want to know from you, like, what is your current professional learning goal or focus for this particular school year? Like, what are you working towards? What's on your mind? <laughs> well, okay. So I really don't believe that we need content in our life so much in terms of think of what teaching has been in the last two centuries about how to do this, how to do that, all about content. But we live in such a content dense, content-rich environment right now. It is so easy to find out how to solve a quadratic equation. Just Google it. In fact, Google is fabulous. So we live in a 21st century where content is no longer the goal. It really is understanding process and assessing what you know, how you know it, and try to identify what you don't know and how you might go about finding it, finding it out. And I think what we really need to start thinking about and focusing on this in this 21st century's world is teaching the art of asking meaningful questions. Now, it's easy to ask, you know, I don't get it type questions and clarification questions. They're, they're good, fine too. But what, what are questions that help you probe to a deeper level of understanding? Look, I, I've got a sense there's something there about quadrates. I just don't quite get what they're about. You know, the word quad, that means number four. Why are the number four when these equations about X squared with number two in them? You know, so how do you teach the art of wanting to ask questions and then figuring out how to ask, ask meaningful questions? So what's going on in my mind now is, is really what I and my family and some colleagues are doing is trying to think about how do you teach the art of asking meaningful questions? Because I think that is the skill of the 21st century and, and beyond. Um, you know, and it really comes down to what I was saying earlier. How do you assess what you think you know and how you know it? If we could just give that to the next generations, what a powerful world we could be living in. 
you know, you see a problem in your life, be it, you know, something to do with the schooling or be it, you know, uh, why is it that girls aren't able to go to school in my village? Or, you know, why can't we have clean water? If there's some problem, you feel like you have a sense of agency that you can take some first steps to ask a question and make some steps towards getting towards some sort of answer, any kind, any, any type of step is, is the, the duty of us for the next century or two. So, yes. So I'm thinking obviously math curriculum. <laughs> I'm trying to think, I think about these questions in the math curriculum context, but I think I'm also in my brain, I, my family are really working hard on, on teaching the world, the art of asking meaningful, productive questions. And how can we do that at scale in a way that brings joy and success and agency to one and all? You know, that little thing. That's what we're working on right now. <laughs> awesome. uh, huge ideas. Yeah. Huge ideas. Uh, you got an undertaking there for sure. Uh, well, there you have it uh, from James Tanton, who is clearly a lifelong learner. Uh, so we want to pose the same question to you listening at home. Like, what is your big professional learning focus going to be for this coming school year or, or to finish out this year? Uh, consider writing it down and pausing this right now and um, setting yourself some checkpoints to monitor how you're working towards achieving that goal. Alongside uh, Exploding Dots, James is also working on building the Global Math Project. And uh, he's been tinkering with some new software as well, I know. Uh, and he, he didn't mention it here, but uh, I've had a chance to check it out um, called Beagle Learning. Um, we're going to make sure to put all the links in the show notes. I know for Exploding Dots, explodingdots.org uh, works for you. Global Math Project, I believe, globalmathproject.org or .com. But we will put that in the uh, show notes as well as the Beagle Learning Link. Um, tons and tons going on there. Obviously, uh, this is all under the umbrella of those big ideas that James just shared. So we'd love to hear about uh, your responses and your reflections on social media at Make Math Moments. And uh, on the episode show notes page, you can also put some comments, makemathmoments.com forward slash episode six, or even through email, never hesitate to reach out to us. So James, John, and I want to thank you so much for joining us on the Make Math Moments podcast. And hopefully we'll be able to get you back on the show before too long to hear what new projects you're working on, uh, including uh, your global math project, how Beagle Learning's shaping up, and uh, you know what what other uh, projects you have on the go at the time. I'm sure there will be others. Well, Jeremy, the real honor's actually been mine. What you guys are doing is just tremendous and fabulous. So congratulations to you and keep it up and you know, multiple thumbs up and full support from my end. You guys are just tremendous and awesome. So thank you for all you're doing here. Honored to be on the on this podcast with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, James. We will catch you soon, my friend. Thank you again and uh, have yourself an amazing day. You too. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening in on this discussion with James Tan. One of my big takeaways from this was when James confirms the fact that all levels of math are wonderful, deep, and intellectually rich. I think some of us need reminders of that. There's so much we can do to dive in right in our own grade levels. My big takeaway from this conversation was around the letting go of the expectation that we have to be experts or the experts in the room. We often put pressure on ourselves to know everything and anything about mathematics, but unfortunately, I'm guessing that many of us can relate to James' experience in school where he was taught rules and procedures over understanding. And if that's the case for you, then we can't beat ourselves up. For me, hearing that come from James makes me pause to remind myself that it's going to take me time, a ton of effort, and patience to build up all of that understanding that I missed along my own K-12 through math journey. So thank you to James for that reminder. 
Just as a reminder, if you want to join us on the podcast for an upcoming Math Mentoring Moment episode where we have a conversation with a member of the Making Math Moments That Matter community like you, who is working through a challenge and together we will brainstorm ideas and next steps to help overcome it, you can apply over on makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. We want to thank our sponsor, Whitebook, for this episode. If you've listened to past episodes, then you know that both John and I regularly have our students solving problems while standing in groups at the whiteboards. For the last year, we've been using Whitebook's flip charts as the writable surface. We love that these dry erase boards have one side blank and on the other side has a grid. And we love how portable they are. You can easily put up the boards on the wall with tape and change your mind to move them around. For us, we bring them on the road when we're doing workshops. They're great for all of these purposes. So as listeners of this podcast, Whitebook has given you a special deal. You can get the teacher starter pack, which includes a variety of great teacher stuff for your classroom. Check that out at mathmoments.whitebook.ca if you're in Canada. And if you're shipping anywhere else in the world, head over to mathmoments.whitebook.com. In order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes of this podcast as they come out each week, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform by simply searching or use these quick links. For iTunes, go to makemathmoments.com forward slash iTunes. For Google Play, go to makemathmoments.com forward slash play. For Spotify, go to makemathmoments.com slash Spotify. And quick links will work for most other popular podcasting platforms as well. We have to thank you so far for all of the subscribes we've been receiving. We've been in iTunes top 200 education podcasts for the last couple of weeks. All of those subscribes and those reviews help us reach a wider audience. So be sure to hit subscribe and give us a review. Also, you can tweet us at Make Math Moments on Twitter. Show notes and links to resources from this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode six. Again, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash episode six. You can also find Make Math Moments on all social media platforms and seek out our free private Facebook group recently named to Math Moment Makers K-12. Don't miss our next episode where we'll be engaging in a math mentoring moment call with Sarah Jane Wells from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. This was a super powerful conversation where she shares how realizing her personal privilege has affected her teaching habits, how she's been working on sparking curiosity consistently to get kids engaged and keep them on task. And a big can of worms was opened when the conversation moved into assessment, evaluation, and the role of descriptive feedback. Get ready because that's going to be a great episode. I'm really looking forward to that episode, but if you're not interested in waiting until then, why not watch our four-part series on building resilient problem solvers who don't want to stop learning math when the bell rings? You can find that free four-lesson video series at makemathmoments.com forward slash lesson one. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash lesson one. Well, until next time. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you.
if you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle, walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook after completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.